Thank you very much. I wanted to begin with, but I don't have time. You know, I always, there is a nice French joke against a stupid Englishman, directed a stupid Englishman who goes to a French restaurant and wants to impress them with his knowledge of French, but gets all the expressions wrong. And it's a wonderful whole line, like the waiter asks him hors d'oeuvre, like hors d'oeuvre, like, you know, appetizer. And he reads it literally, out of work, and answer, no, no, I'm not hors d'oeuvre, I have my job, I can pay for it, and so on, and so on. <laughs> and at the end, to impress them, saying good night, he wants to appear educated Latin, he says, nota bene, you know, like, good night, so... Okay, no. let me tell you a better one than in that mode. This uh, man arrives at the University of, at the, sorry, at the airport of Athens, I'm not fully awake yet, <laughs> Arrives at the airport of Athens, goes to the immigration officer. Immigration officer says, nationality, German. Occupation? No, no, I'm here for holidays. <laughs> <laughs> but you Greeks have a limit of humor. I was once sitting beneath Acropolis in a restaurant, and they tried to convince me that there is a crisis in Greece. And I looked up and said, my God, you know Acropolis, my God, if you don't even have the money to renovate that building, it must no, really be a big crisis in Greece, you know. And they didn't find it funny. I don't know what problems you have. Sorry, now, uh, I have a lot to say, so let's go to work. Seriously, uh, I promise you, this may be bad news for you. Uh, not even one joke. It is... And some stuff that may be a little bit, you already know, at least some of you. But I really want to go through this line of why Hegel today and then to end up in an undecidable mood, what Hegel may be or maybe not, cannot think, what is the limit. Okay, I would like to begin with a guy with whom, of course, politically I don't agree, Robert Pippin, the American liberal Hegelian, but nonetheless, he did something wonderful in the last two, three years. He wrote two books on Hegel and, which are quite surprising. First, a book on Hegel and Western, wonderful reading of Stagecoach, Red River, and so on, a Hegelian reading, and then a book on Hegel and Film Noir. Now, a guy who does this cannot be a totally <laughs> bad guy. So, in his book on film noir, Pippin describes the hero's predicament in a film noir. Yes, we are doomed. Fate pulls the strings. Every manipulator is in his or her turn manipulated. Every position of a free agent who decides his fate is illusory. But to simply endorse or assume this predicament is also an illusion an escapist avoiding of the burden of responsibility. So, we have a double impossibility. We cannot escape from the clutches of fate. We are not free. But we also cannot escape from the burden of responsibility into fate. You know, this paradox of, yes, I'm not free, but the moment I subjectively say, ha-ha, I'm not free, so what? It's also false. This, I think, is why... Psychoanalysis is exemplary of our predicament. Freud's lesson is that, yes, we are decentered, caught in a foreign cobweb, overdetermined by unconscious mechanisms, you know, all that rather stupid sounding today, Lacanian jargon, I don't speak, I am spoken, and all that stuff, the other speaks through me. But, nonetheless, as Lacan always emphasizes, 
to simply assume this as a subjective position. For example, I don't know. I say something stupid, Costas, in a totally justified way, criticizes me, and then to say, ah, sorry, the big other is speaking through me, it's not me. So, you know, although you are not free, you are nonetheless fully responsible. This redoubled impossibility is what defines the status of the Lacanian real. As it was already mentioned a couple of times yesterday, real is inaccessible, impossible, but at the same time unavoidable, necessary. For example, jouissance, excessive enjoyment. Usually we only hear the poetry of, oh, incestuous enjoyment is impossible, you cannot ever reach it, it always... Like Alenka's mother, it always, it always uh, eludes you and so on. But, you know, it's absolutely crucial to bear in mind that for Lacan, yes, we always miss the full jouissance, but at the same time, we cannot get rid of it. Maybe a more fundamental lesson by Lacan is how, is the, uh, how no matter how you try to get rid of enjoyment, like all the obsessional rituals are destined to do this, it haunts you. You know this standard obsessional idea how you have certain illicit desires, you punish yourself, weeping yourself, uh, you weep yourself, whatever, and then all of a sudden you start to enjoy the punishment itself. Like whatever you do, you cannot escape it. Did you notice how the same goes for free associations in psychoanalysis? On the one hand, and Freud was well aware, free associations are in a way impossible. It's not that you really can suspend all rational reasoning and really just have the free flow, whatever. But at the same time, that's the point. And that's the fundamental dialectic of psychoanalytic session treatment. No matter how well you plan it in advance, and you are talking to a master here. When I was in analysis, I planned up to five sessions in advance. <laughs> Every slip of tongue was well planned and so on. Uh, it has the status of free associations. You cannot escape it. Uh, we should note here how the relationship between these two impossibilities is asymmetrical. First, we are forced to accept the impossibility to reach a certain goal. Radical incestuous jouissance, the spontaneity of free associations, or whatever. Then, we are unable to get rid of what we were in vain trying to reach. Everything we do is stained by jouissance and so on. In other words, the real, as already said, is simultaneously impossible and unavoidable. And what is not so often noticed, especially by post-colonial critics, is that the same goes, holds for the properly dialectical status of universality. What people prefer to emphasize is we cannot ever reach universality. Everyone who pretends to speak on behalf of certain universality is a hidden Western imperialist imposing a particular view, blah, blah. You know, all that story, human rights are really the rights of Western upper middle class women or whatever, intentional slip. But, uh, but at the same time, Marx has a much more fundamental lesson that insofar as we are subject of market, we are universal. We cannot escape universality. No matter how particular you are, it's already a secondary 
filling in of a universal place. So again, universality is impossible. And we can play these stupid games. When I speak with a Chinese friend and tell him your state is non-democratic, he will tell me, how do you know that we use the term state in the same way you are imposing on me? Like uh, This happened to me in India. When I told to my cultural studies friends there, what about uh, struggle against caste and for equality, they told me don't impose on us Western imperialist notions like equality and so on. Uh, so, uh, uh, another of this double deadlock, negation of negation, it is in this sense that, and Alenka developed this in an un yet unpublished text, I think that for Lacan, desire is indestructible precisely insofar as it is utterly fleeting, evanescent, impossible. Desire is not in a Jungian like a big, solid, substantial rock. Desire is nothing. It all, all the way avoids you, but as such, it always returns. Uh, this brings us to freedom, which I claim in Kant's practical philosophy has the same status of an impossible real. A truly free act is first impossible in the simple common sense that we cannot ever be sure that what we did was really a free act. It can always be, and Kant admitted that, that in a hidden way, what you think, you think you are doing something for the sake of duty. But in a hidden way, there is always a suspicion that there was some pathological motivation. Even if your act is pure, it can be that you did it precisely to boast in front of others to cause esteem, like, oh, you see, I did it for... So, it's impossible. But this is only the one side of the story. What causes true anxiety is the prospect that our act really was free. And this trauma is domesticated by reducing it to some pathological uh, motivation. For, so, what I'm saying here is, you see, it's not that we pretend to do a pure, free act of duty, but the analyst comes, ha, 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 you were thinking of impressing your peers or whatever. No, a much more traumatic fact for Kant is that it's very difficult to accept the horror of a free act, and so release comes precisely from reducing it to something pathological. Don't worry, it's part of natural chain of causes, effects, and so on and so on. Uh, Kierkegaard's notion of sickness unto death relies on the same tension. One should be very careful here. Uh, Kierkegaard is not saying being mortal makes us, uh, causes anxiety, it's horrible. No, Kierkegaard's point is the opposite one. The truly traumatic, unbearable fact is to accept that we are immortal, that we are in this sense, responsible in the afterlife. And precisely, the escape is to say, ha ha, I can kill you, sorry, neutral example, doesn't matter, I'm a piece of, after I die, I disappear, I turn into dust, and so on, and so on. So it is after a religious talk you're giving. Sorry? It's Sunday, you're talking about immortality. Absolutely, but there is different, there are different, I will return to it later, immortalities, yes. Let me go on. Now, a very simplified but I think pertinent dilemma. The topic of Hegel's materialism is maybe condensed in one simple question. Can the Hegelian movement of negation of negation 
account for such weird redoubled impossibility, which is also a form of negation of negation. Like, first I claim I am not free, I negate freedom, but then this very escape from freedom proves impossible. This same question can also be put in the terms of the relationship between the Hegelian negation of negation and Lacan's couple of alienation and separation. For Lacan, alienation of the subject in the symbolic order is constitutive of the subject. There is stricto sensu no subject who alienates himself or herself or rather itself into its otherness. You know, I claim when you put it like this, subject alienates itself into fetishized substance, you are already saying too much because the subject is the result of the process of alienation. It emerges through the loss of its substantial content. And this is why Lacan does have a counter move, this alienation. But it's not the standard Hegelian one, or at least what people think the Hegelian one of, you know, I alienate myself in substantial content and then triumphantly I recognize myself in the otherness, I reappropriate. No. For Lacan, alienation is just redoubled, to use the old Hegelian phrase that I repeat endlessly. This, let's say we have, uh, let's say ancient Egyptians have in their stupid pyramid some secrets for us. This alienation is not, now I know what is the secret. This alienation is just to, to experience how what we saw as the secret of the Egyptians for us were the secrets already for the Egyptians themselves. So the secret remains, it's just redoubled. Another exemplary case of such a weird redoubled negation is provided by the existential position of the self-negated pessimism. I'm talking here about a form of optimism which is in a way even worse than pessimism, this was developed by our, Alenka's and mine, good friend Aaron Schuster, um, um, American Lacanian. He had some Deleuzean deviation. He is cured now of them, I think. Uh, who developed this idea that there is a breakdown of the principled form of pessimism when, in a weird, a pursi muove, it still goes on, when life goes on, too weak even to follow consequently itself renunciation. So again, this optimism is not the usual Hegelian negation of negation, like first we are optimists, then we have to accept the gap, the failure, and that would be the usual wrong idea of Hegel. Somehow we see how our very defeat contributes through the cunning of reason to some greater cause, so we get a mediated optimism. No. What we get is a different movement. First, optimism is negated. The subject assumes the insight into how, to cut it short, life is shit. But then, the very form of principled pessimist position is negated. You know, even to claim life is shit is too much of a principled position to assume when you really existentially think that life is shit. When you think that life is shit, if you really think it, it's too much to kill yourself or to negate it. Life goes on in a weird, optimistic way where it's such a shit that I don't even have the strength to terminate it. Here is Schuster's wonderful 
half a page quote, I'm sorry, description of this existential position. Optimism, this radical, crazy optimism, is not the opposite of pessimism. It has no positive substance or consistency, no resilient spirit that could stand on its own. But it is a further elaboration of pessimism's relentless negativity. It is what is subtracted from the nothingness of pessimism, the thorn that doesn't allow pessimism to comfortably settle into itself, to vanish into its own nihilism, yet without converting it into its opposite. Against this common sense, the common sense must defend the mad idealist claim that the concept of pessimism is correct and life itself is wrong. If there were any ontological justice, the human species would disappear in a path of logical smoke, like the computer in Star Trek that explodes when ordered to solve a logical paradox. The fact that life doesn't do so does not refute pessimism, but requires us to admit a certain ironic twist. Rather than the proof of an indomitable vitality and richness, this clinging to life is the supreme ontological injustice, a violent perturbation of the self-cancelling nothing. End of quote. And again, I will just briefly mention it, how the same goes on for immortality, not only in the already described Kierkegaardian sense, but also in the sense of the undead and so on and so on. Immortality, mortality, but then there is some immortality which is even lower than mortality itself, vampires, undead, and so on and so on. Okay, so again, my question is, where does Hegel stand with regard to all of this? Can a Hegelian mechanism, the, the basic formal matrix of the electrical process, can it account for this strange, what I called in one of my earlier books, downward synthesis, where the third term is not some kind of a higher synthesis, but the lowest of the lowest, as it were. Uh, let me approach this topic through another point, through a detour. Thinkers as different as Nietzsche, Heidegger, or Derrida, all conceive their own age as that of the critical turning point of metaphysics. In their or our time, that's the idea, metaphysics has exhausted its potentials. And the thinker's duty is to prepare the ground for a new post-metaphysical thinking. I think that Derrida is more ambiguous here, but at least in some of his earlier texts, even he says like the closure of uh, metaphysics, we are approaching a certain zero point with Heidegger, it's evident technology as the exhaustion of possibilities and uh, metaphysics. More generally, the entire Judeo-Christian tradition up to our post-modernity is determined by what I'm tempted to call the Helderlin paradigm. You know, Helderlin is famous, wo aber Gefahr ist, wächst das rettende auch. Where the danger is, grows also what can save us. So again, within this paradigm, the present moment appears as the lowest point in the long process of historical decadence. The flight of gods, economic alienation, social alienation in Marxism, whatever. But the danger of the catastrophic loss of the essential dimension of being human also opens up the possibility of a reversal. 
Kerre in Heidegger. The arrival of new gods for Heidegger, proletarian revolution for Marx. You know, so where the danger is, the extreme exhaustion, there is also hope for a reversal. So how does Hegel stand towards this? My claim is that although Hegel is usually taken as the clearest case of this paradigm, you know, Atteral nation, then uh, uh, the thing turns into it opposite, that Hegel is not part of this paradigm. A certain historical teleology is wrongly associated with Hegel. The common sense or textbook idea of Hegel is that there is a naive beginning, an immediacy which lacks inner wealth and articulation, then development means dispersion, fall, up to the utter alienation which opens up the possibility of reversal. Paradoxically, I claim it is Marx, not Hegel, who follows this logic. In, especially in his famous manuscript on pre-capitalist modes of economic production. For Marx, there, the uniqueness of the capitalist mode of production resides in the fact that in it, I quote here Marx, labor is torn out from its primordial immersion into its objective conditions. And because of this, labor appears on the one side itself as labor and on the other side the labor's own product as objectified labor obtains against labor a completely autonomous existence as value. End of quote. The worker thus appears, quote, as objectless, purely subjective capacity of labor confronted with the objective conditions of production as its non-property, as a foreign property, a value which exists for itself as capital. However, the quote goes on, this extreme form of alienation in which, in the guise of the relationship of the capital towards wage labor, labor, productive activity, appears as opposed to its own conditions and to its own product, this extreme alienation is a necessary point of transition, and for that reason in itself, in an inverted form, it already contains the disintegration of all limited presuppositions of production, and even creates and produces the unconditional presuppositions of production, and thereby all material conditions for the total universal development of the productive forces of the of individuals, end of quote. So history is thus the gradual process of the separation of subjective activity from its objective conditions, that is, from its immersion into the substantial totality. This process reaches its culmination in modern capitalism with the emergence of the proletariat, this substanceless subjectivity of workers totally separated from their objective conditions of work. This separation, again, is already in itself their liberation because it creates this free point of pure subjectivity as a point of reference, standpoint from which collective subjectivity can reappropriate the alienated objective conditions. And, of course, that's the Helderlin paradigm of Marx. Today we are approaching that point of possible reversal. But again, is this process of uh, subjective division, alienation, and then the final reversal, really a Hegelian one? The first thing to note is that this kairos 
position of finding oneself just before the reversal of danger into redemption is never that of Hegel. The Hegelian historical moment is not the moment of the highest tension when the teleological resolution seems near, but it is Hegelian position, specific historical experience, I claim, is the moment after when the resolution is accomplished but misses its goal and turns into a nightmare. At this moment, the Hegelian problem is how to remain faithful to the original goal of liberation, how not to turn towards a conservative position to say, you know, oh, it was a mistake, nihilistic mistake. The Hegel, Hegel's innermost desire, however weirdly it may appear articulated, is, for example, precisely apropos French Revolution. It's absolutely not and never to dismiss the French Revolution as a great mistake and claim we Germans will do it without cutting heads. No, you don't do anything without cutting heads. No. Uh, Hegel's position is precisely how, at the very moment when liberation, obviously, in some sense for him, through Jacobin terror, goes wrong, how to nonetheless save the day through repetition and redeem its, to use the Marxist term, uh, rational core. And I claim this is why our moment is still Hegelian. What Hegel called uh, the, uh, absolute freedom and terror was a pretty mild thing compared to what the greatest genius of humanity, Comrade Stalin and others, did in the 20th century. Like, you know, never forget, before lambasting on Jacobins, that they were simply overthrown by a vote in Assemblée Nationale. I would like to see someone doing this in Supreme Soviet, you know, like voting against Stalin, no? So, what I'm saying is that this maybe is the lesson of the terrifying experiences of the 20th century. We should return from Marx back to Hegel, from Marx's revolutionary eschatology back to Hegel's tragic vision of a history which forever remains radically open since the historical process always redirects our activity into an unexpected direction. Perhaps the left should learn to assume fully the basic alienation of the historical process. We cannot control the consequences of our acts, not because we are just puppets in the hands of some secret master or fate which, hidden behind the curtain, pulls the strings, but for precisely the opposite reason. There is no big other, no agent of total accountancy who or which can take into account the consequences of our acts. This acceptance of alienation, therefore, in no way entails a cynical distance. It implies a fully engaged position, but a position aware of the risks involved. There is no higher historical necessity whose instruments we are and which guarantees the final outcome. All we have is our activity open to all the risks of an open contingent history. Or, to put it at a more conceptual level, this means that the conclusive moment of the dialectical process is not a synthetic unity, a return at a higher level to some form of the one. For Hegel, alienation is also, I claim, constitutive of the subject, in the radical sense that 
subject does not pre-exist its alienation, but emerges through it. This is an important point. For Hegel, it's to fetishize, sorry, the subject already too much to claim subject alienates itself. No, it's only nature that alienates itself from itself. And, you know, the self in self-alienation is nature, not subject. Subject is the outcome of the self-alienation of nature. So, again, as I already said, uh, here things get interesting, because... uh, Of course, we should assert some kind of irreducible alienation. But don't be afraid. It's not the Marxist alienation where some big other substance controls us. No, that's precisely precisely the illusion. Alienation can be overcome, but precisely in the sense of the Marxist alienation. You know where fate, market, whatever uh, controls us. what we can do is to see how, as Lacan would have put it, the big other doesn't exist. For example, in history, there is no higher historical necessity, substantial <coughs> historical agent, world spirit, and so on. I'm here totally against Charles Taylor and that naive subjectivist reading of Hegel, as if Hegel thinks that above us individuals there is, well, uh, there is some kind of absolute subject who pulls the strings behind. But, but nonetheless, because, aliena- because self-alienation of nature is constitutive of subject, when you break out of alienation, again, you don't get this overblown narcissistic subject who appropriates the other. You just get the, the gap is displaced. Uh, the gap, this is how uh, uh, I think we should reread this alienation. Not in the sense that we abolish the gap, but in the sense that when we experience ourselves as alienated from the other, that we see how this alienation should be displaced into the other itself. There is no other substantial other with regard to whom we are alienated, the gap is redoubled. And now a little bit more of philosophy. This brings me again to Heidegger. What we confront with late Heidegger is, I think, the problem of historicity at its most radical. I think if you ask me that Heidegger is the most radical imaginable philosopher of historicity, in what sense? Heidegger's, late Heidegger's, Ereignis, event, historicity, is historicity which goes, as it were, all the way down, which cannot be reduced to the deployment or revelation in history of a non-historical absolute. Uh, To put it in not quite appropriate terms of German idealism, Heidegger's achievement is to elaborate a radically historicized transcendentalism. The Heideggerian historicity is the historicity of transcendental horizons themselves, of the different modes of the disclosure of being, with no agent regulating the process. Here, one should defend Heidegger. Ereignis is not some hidden god who said to humanity, here now you have the message, Aristotelian for antiquity, ah, it's the modern era, now I'm sending you uh, the message of subjectivity, technical exploitation of nature. No, Ereignis is Ilya, as gift. It's totally non-substantial play. 
There is nothing behind it. For Heidegger, the ultimate horizon is the horizon of this Weltspiel, as he puts it, of play of different transcendental horizons. Like, for example, which is why, for Heidegger, he, at a much higher level, Heidegger does the same thing, I claim, as a somehow ridiculous figure of uh, West Coast American pseudo-follower of Foucault, who, I tried it once, tried to ask a Foucauldian discourse analyst, uh, what is this table? And he will tell you, ah, the only question we can ask is, in what discursive regime can we even speak about a table, and so on, you know? Or, do I have an immortal soul? Oh, in what discursive... You know, like, as if uh, the ontic question, to put it naively, is totally subordinated to that of the ontological horizon. And Heidegger is here consequent. That is why, for Heidegger, the ultimate catastrophe is always the ontological one. And he likes to repeat this courageously, even apropos of the threat of uh, atomic catastrophe. No? He says that, he, for example, or ecological catastrophe, he says openly that the true catastrophe is not if humanity will destroy itself ontically on our earth. The true catastrophe already happened the moment we dwell in the technological universe, and so on. But now comes my problem. Nonetheless, this will sound a naive reproach, but it's incredible, and I not only checked it up myself, looking for these places, but asked some people who know better Heidegger than me, and they confirmed to me how, from the very beginning, okay, not quite the beginning, Zeit till the end, Heidegger was bothered by this residual question. Because he knew very well, he was a serious philosopher, that transcendental constitution is not creation. It's just the opening up of a horizon of disclosure of being. So Heidegger was again and again raising, and I love him most at those points, uh, this totally naive question. Okay, but the objects, the way they appear to us, they appear to us always within a certain world, horizon of meaning, and so on. But what or how are they, or in what sense they dwell? We cannot talk of existence, because existence is for Heidegger always within an ontological horizon, outside this horizon. Uh, well, this question persists throughout. For example, from 1931, in a letter to Elisabeth Blochmann, Heidegger writes, I often ask myself, this has for a long time been a fundamental question for me. What nature would be without man? Must it not resonate through him in order to attain its own most potency? I claim that here Heidegger almost rejoins late Schelling or Benjamin, you know, Benjamin's idea of how... Uh, uh, for example, the well-known passage from Benjamin. The past carries with it a temporal index by which it is referred to redemption. There is a secret agreement between past generations and the present one. Our coming was expected on earth. So, uh, what Heidegger is hinting at is that uh, we should bring this logic to the end. It doesn't hold only for human history. 
that like later later the last big revolution will retroactively redeem earlier revolution but that it holds even at a more radical level for the very relationship between what in inappropriate terms we call uh, human being and nature uh, uh, that is to say back to the quoted passage from Heidegger uh, one should note that this passage about what is nature outside humanity, with no relation to humanity, is from the period immediately after Heidegger's lectures on the fundamental concepts of metaphysics, from 2930, where the same question is also formulated as a Schellingian hypothesis that perhaps animals are, in a hitherto unknown way, aware of their luck, of their poorness, so that there is an infinite pain pervading the entire living nature. Quote from Heidegger, if deprivation in certain forms is a kind of suffering and poverty and deprivation of world belongs to the animal being, then a kind of pain and suffering would have to permit the whole animal realm and the realm of life in general. What I want to do is to save this Heidegger from the obvious temptation of some New Age mystical reading or whatsoever. The choice Heidegger is confronting here is the following one. According to his basic position, the reproach that the definition of animal, as you know, poor in the world, weltarm, and of stone as weltlos, without world, they imply reference to the human, opened up to a world, and so this would be the transcendental solution, that when Heidegger talks about animals as Weltarm, poor in the world, he simply means that we, as humans, are always within the horizon of opening up, dwelling within a world, and from this point, we cannot but experience animals as Weltarm. But the question, what are animals in themselves, is simply meaningless, because it would presume that we can somehow step out of our inner worldly existence, not ontic, but in the sense of dwelling within a horizon of meaning and simply from nowhere look at reality. However, as if himself doubting the sufficiency of this transcendental reply, Heidegger hints at another position, not that things are simply there, in the worldless reality, but that their deprived of the world situation, status, is not just the way we perceive them from our human position. It is something that characterizes them there immanently. Heidegger refers here to an old motive of German romanticism, I already mentioned it from Schelling to Benjamin, the motive of the great sorrow of nature, or as Derrida paraphrases Benjamin Derrida in his wonderful short book, The Animal That I Am, quote, it is in the hope of requiting that sorrow, of redemption from that suffering, that humans live and speak in nature. It's a beautiful mystical thought that our human speech exploded to redeem nature from its suffering. Uh, Again, is this to be dismissed as a stupid, uh, mystical, obscurantist, New Age topic? No. I think it asks the right, it raises rather the right 
question, which is not what is nature for language. Can we grasp nature adequately through our language? But the true Hegelian question, which is the opposite one, what is language for nature? How does the emergence of language affect nature? Aaron Schuster again drew attention to how Lacan himself oscillates here between the predominant transcendental approach and some timid hints to its beyond. It's interesting how, again, Lacan here, if you read him closely, is caught in exactly the same predicament as Heidegger. On the one hand, Lacan's official position is the symbolic order is the ultimate horizon. You know, all that we are always already in language, blah, blah, and all that we can do is, like, in a platonic mode to concoct, invent beautiful stories, to develop myths about what went before. But it's not as simple as that. Uh, Often Heidegger hints, sorry, Lacan, that, that the symbolic order is a reaction to some radical deadlock. Of course, he doesn't use these mystical terms, sorrow in nature, but deadlock being at a loss dislocation, which is already there in nature. Again, I quote, uh, uh, the, uh, so that, the Freudian Unbehagen in their culture should be supplemented by an uncanny Unbehagen in their nature. It's not simply that nature is this homeostatic, uh, healthy universe where, uh, uh, you know, uh, animals know when to copulate, how, whatever, things are at their own place, and then, you know, all this romantic topic of human being as nature sick unto death, displaced nature, no. A displacement must already be there, back in nature. Or again, a quote from Schuster, and I'm more than three quarters into it, so don't be afraid. Uh, Imagine all of nature waiting for the gift of speech so it can express how bad it is to be a vegetable or a fish. (laughs) Is it not the special torment of nature to be deprived of the means of conveying its pent-up aggravation, unable to articulate even, even the simplest Lament, oh me, I am the sea. And does not the emergence on earth of the speaking being effectively release this terrible organic tension and bring it to a higher level of non-resolution? You see the nice, not the higher level of resolution, but of non-resolution. While there are some intriguing passages in Lacan's seminars where he speculates on the infinite pain of being a plant, raising the possibility of an unbehagen in der Natur. For the most part, he conceives the relationship between nature and culture to be the one of radical discontinuity. End of quote. So again, uh, you see uh, uh, how Lacan works. On the one hand, you have this eternal, eternal, poetry of dislocation of sexuality in human species in contrast to poor animals who nonetheless have instincts which are embodied knowledge which tell them when, how to copulate and so on and so on, which is why along these lines Gerard Weizmann, a Lacanian 
tried to account along these lines for our fascination with all this infinitely boring. I think that I am here in a Goebbels mood. They should be burned publicly. You know, these animal life documentaries on uh, nature, National Geographic. The fascination of them truly is that, you know, uh, animals, somehow it's a universe which works, you know. You don't have to write love letters, instincts tell you, now I screw you, then whatever, no? And, uh, and I think we should go here even a step further. When you watch in these ambiguous uh, uh, channels like National Geographic, sometimes they also have reports on human communities. But usually it's some isolated Alaskan or Midwest small town, which is treated precisely as a small animal kingdom, you know where... Local Americans know, now I get drunk, now go to the store, or to go to the end, now I buy a gun and go to a school and <laughs> kill half of them. <laughs> it's all part of natural, natural balance. But I think, and here I refer to, did you already publish it, or am I still free to appropriate it myself, Alenka? How, uh, Alenka developed this point, how, uh, how uh, one should risk a step further, not a new age mysticism, that there is some secret awareness already in nature, but to put it very simply, that uh, you know how Eric Hobsbawm speaks about invented traditions, how we retract that maybe nature in this homeostatic sense is the ultimate invented tradition. And maybe true materialism begins when you transpose the dislocation gap, whatever, that is perceived as specifically human, like, you know, nature in itself, Mother Earth loving us all, whatever, and then we be, that when we transpose this gap back into the origin, back into nature itself. And I refer here to Alenka, uh, uh, in a text not yet published, she again, developed all this in detail precisely apropos uh, sexuality. How, in a crucial passage, when he inter Lacan introduces the term of lamella in uh, uh, Seminar uh, 11 for fundamental concepts, he says something which passes unnoticed. He says, I quote it, Lacan, what is Lamella is what is subtracted from the living being by virtue of the fact that it is subject to the cycle of sex, reproduction, and so on and so on. So be careful here. The deadlock is already there in nature. Again, this doesn't mean any kind of teleology. But it means that human speech is not a fall from some natural balance, but a reaction working through a fall which is there from the very beginning. Now, the last couple of pages with the political point, I think that all that I'm trying to say was said beautifully by Wagner in his Parsifal, whose final message is, in German, die Wunde schließt der Sperr nur der Sichlug. The wound can be healed only by the spear that made it, smote it, cut it. Hegel says the same thing, although with the accent shifted into the opposite direction. The spirit is itself the wound it tries to heal. 
That is to say, what is spirit at its most elementary for Hegel? It's the wound of nature. The spirit of human subjectivity is the power of differentiating, of abstracting, of tearing apart, of treating as self-standing what in reality is part of an organic unity. Spirit is nothing but the process of overcoming natural immediacy and organic unity. The process of mediation of this immediacy. So, uh, uh, spirit's return to itself creates the very dimension to which it returns. At a more formal level, in his logic of reflection, at the beginning of book two uh, uh, of logic, logic of essence, Hegel uses the unique term that I mentioned yesterday in the debate, absoluter gegenstoss, recoil, counterpush, countertrust, or I prefer the movie counterpunch. A withdrawal from that creates what it withdraws from. A quote. Reflection, therefore, finds before it an immediate which it transcends and from which it is the return. But this return is only the presupposing of what reflection finds before it. What is thus found only comes to be through being left behind. The reflective movement is to be taken as an absolute recoil, absolute ergegenstoss, upon itself. From the presupposition of the return into itself, that from which essence comes, and is only as this return, for this presupposition is only in the return itself. End of quote. Absolute ergegenstoss thus stands for the radical coincidence of the opposite in which the action appears as its own counteraction, or more precisely, in which the very negative move, lose, loss, withdrawal, generates what if what it negates. Now, I come to my final political example, which some of you maybe know, I mentioned it yesterday, I want to elaborate it a little bit more in detail. Uh, it's the example that I repeat all the time about from a visit of mine in India two years ago when in a debate some Indian cultural theorists complained that the fact that they are compelled to use English language in debating with me or even among themselves is already a form of cultural colonialism, censoring their own true identity. Their line of argumentation was something like we have to speak in an imposed foreign language to express our innermost identity. And does this not put us in a position of radical alienation? Even our resistance to colonization has to be formulated in the language of the colonizer. My answer was, yes, but this imposition of English, a foreign language, created the very X which is oppressed by it. Because... When you feel oppressed, you should note that what is oppressed is not the actual pre-colonial idea, but an authentic dream of a new universalist democratic India. And this dream emerges through very colonization. Malcolm X, one of my authentic heroes, the one, you know, Denzel Washington, to put it in human terms in the film... <laughs> was following the same insight when he adopted X as his family name. 
it's not as some uh, commentators wrongly think that uh, he was fighting on behalf of the return to some primordial African roots and extent for you see evil white men deprived us of the very roots. No, he was well aware that this X, X meaning through enslavement, white people deprived the blacks of their particular roots, that this very gap, hole in their particular identity uh, uh, is what also offers a unique chance of universalist position and thus freedom. He saw in this act the resource, although literally he was a Wagnerian, the Wunde schließt, the Wunde of colonization schließt only even more radical colonization, like don't bemoan lost roots, screw the roots, your roots are white man's imagination, which is literally true in South Africa. Remember, that's the wisdom of Magdala, when uh, South Africa was approaching apartheid, who was playing the black roots card? Uh, Butelezi, the king who was on the payroll of, uh, of the white uh, majority. Ne you should never forget this, that against people like Homi Baba, who claim that uh, imperialism is uh, imposing on us. No, imperialism is inherently multicultural. Imperialism wants the other to retain its original roots, and so on. So let me go on. Uh, what does this mean? And please, I'm not lying. <laughs> uh, uh, we thus get the structure of a dialectical process which is radically different from the triad of some substantial immediacy, alienation, and then reconciliation in a higher unity. The beginning is not an immediate unity which is then lost. There is no unity preceding the loss. What is lost is retroactively constituted through its loss. Reconciliation, reconciliation means, in this case of Indians, the reconciliation with, Eng with English language, which is to be accepted not only as the obstacle to a new India, but as an enabling medium, as the positive condition of liberation. The true victory over colonialism is not the return to some kind of pre-colonial authentic substance, even less any synthesis between modern civilization and pre-modern origin. You know, this is the eternal fascist dream. We can have modernity, but part of our old organic culture, whatever. Uh, paradoxically, liberation is the fully accomplished loss of pre-modern origins. In other words, colonialism is not overcome when the intrusion of e English language as a medium is abolished. But when the colonizers are, as it were, beaten at their own game, when the new Indian identity will be effortlessly formulated in English, when English language is, will be denaturalized, will lose its Anglo-Saxon privilege. And this is why I like globalization. People just see this aspect of, oh, imperialism, we all speak English. Yes, but as intelligent conservatives in the United States know, the English that we are speaking now all, is Slovenian. Yeah, it's a Greek, Slovene, uh, Chinese, let's be racist, uh, uh, some Chinese merchants in Singapore, they are much closer to this universal English than, than, uh, than Americans. Or to put it in another way, what the experience of English language as an oppressive imposition obfuscates is that 
The same holds for every language. You see, we should do here the same move. You should not forget that uh, focusing on English as an oppressive medium obfuscates the fact that your original language had the same oppressive quality, and through this displacement, you can sustain the myth that we had an authentic language, while the ABC thesis that unites Freud, Hegel, Lacan is precisely that Heidegger is too simplistic when he speaks about language as house designs, as the, uh, the house of being. It's, as I supplemented in two of my books, I think house is, a language is not simply a house of being, it's a torture house of being. Like, le- the, the fundamental relationship between language and human being is one of traumatic cut, torture, and so on and so on. And we have, we have to accept the radical dimension of it. Uh, so, today, more than ever, one should insist on this properly Hegelian ambiguity of colonialism. Colonial powers did brutally intrude into traditional societies all around the world, derailing their customs, disintegrating their social fabric, not to mention economic exploitation. So it is, I agree, unbearably hypocritical of the Western states to worry about illegal immigration. When immigrants from poor states try to penetrate the developed Western states, this States are getting back their own message, reaping the harvest of their own past acts. And again, Marx, when he describes the consequences of the British colonization of India, is here very brutal and open, interestingly, as if suspecting what will happen one one century and a half later, he even mentions outsourcing of torture as an as a British strategy, like we don't torture prisoners, we give them to Indians, and so on. But one should never forget how it is precisely apropos the wound of colonialism that Wagner's Die Wunde schließt der Spernur der Zischluck holds. The very disintegration of traditional forms opens up the space of liberation. You see my point? My point is... Uh, What appears to be the deepest wound of colonialism gives you, the colonized, the chance to become more universal than we stupid Westerners ever were. You can beat us on our own terrain. You have the unique chance, as Malcolm X saw it, to create an authentic universality against our effectively limited universality. To get this point, We should bear in mind that the universality that I'm talking about here is not a common feature uniting different cultures or societies. I'm not talking about that, my God, I hate those books, you know, those UNESCO presentations of world culture, where, oh, this culture, that culture. No, I'm not for a, a, you know, a a leftist pseudo-multicultural answer to a clash of civilizations was... I think, unfortunately, the Spanish once, uh, Zapatero, prime minister, proposed the formula of pact among civilizations. No, that's the worst thing that can happen. We should, on the contrary, uh, the formula, our answer to clash of civilization is universal solidarity between multiple clashes within each civilization. 
the same struggle runs across different civilizations. So the topic of West versus the subaltern should be subordinated to the topic of which is the same struggle that we share. What I see in the West is, for example, the ongoing struggle between the twin powers of neoliberal global capitalism and its dark shadow, new forms of racist fundamentalism on the one side and forces of radical emancipation, Costas mentioned them the first day, on the other side. And whatever, whenever there is political struggle outside the West, my question is, can my struggle and their struggle become moments of the same struggle? And this is why I think there is nothing imaginary but an authentic universality in how, when you had demonstration on Tahrir Square in Cairo, protests in Greece, anti-racist struggle in Africa, up to Naxalit guerrillas and Dalit awakening in India, that we immediately feel solidarity. I don't think this should be dismissed and some, oh, imaginary solidarity, obfuscating deep differences. No. There is a real in this universality. So, I do not see India versus Europe. I see the same struggle here and there. My India is not the India of Brahmin cultural studies, but the India of Saroygiri and other of my leftist friends. Uh, my India is not the India of Gandhi, but the India of Ambedkar. My India is maybe up to a point, I don't know enough of it, but even maybe the India of Naxalit rebellion. Yes, this gesture is offensive, what I said now, but offensive against whom? Against the enemy, because we do have enemies. I would like to conclude with this apparently non-Hegelian thought that is emphasized by Badiou. You know, in today's politically correct times, it's even dangerous sometimes to say this, you know, as if, no, when you speak about enemy, you castigate, fetishize the other. No, we do have enemies, and enemies are especially dangerous when they think they're working for our own good. This is what unites Stalinism and neo uh, uh, neoliberal market universalism. They are telling us, okay, half of the people will lose jobs, but in the long term it's for their own good. So, for the same reason that we should reject the justification of Stalinist crimes, I think I used this in a comment for Guardian, maybe you remember it, that wonderful phrase by, by Turkish communist writer Panait Istrati. You know, he visited Moscow in mid-30s and, uh, and got, of course, into a debate about the Stalinist purges, and uh, 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 some Stalinists told him, but you know, that's the price of our progress, like, and he evoked a Stalinist like to do uh, some obscene proverb, like, you know, you cannot bake an omelette without breaking some eggs, no? Incidentally, a friend of mine, a Slovene Lacanian, now looked into it and found that among Yugoslav communists, the obscene proverb used to justify crimes was usually a sexual one. Like Yugoslav big leaders, like Edward Cardell, the leading, like to use the word like uh, a, a wimpy boy never got to sleep with a girl or whatever. Some, this, okay, what I want to say is that what happened is that after hearing this, maybe you know, but it's a wonderful reply. Oh, you cannot make an omelette without breaking eggs. You know what Panait Istrati answered? Yeah, I got your point. I see broken eggs 
all around, but can you finally show me the omelette? You know? <laughs> Where is the big omelette? And that should be our answer to Neo. Yes, we see all around Greece, Slovenia, now Spain, here we see broken eggs everywhere. Show us finally the fucking omelette. No? But that would be the Gallian answer. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, Slavoj. Appropriately um, religious talk for a Sunday morning. Uh, excellent. Now, let, let me start with a pretty naive question. You know, I mean, in the midst of all these Hegelians, you know, I know my Hegel, but I haven't read the literature. I mean, is this Zizek or Hegel? I mean, let me take... It's a non-Hegelian question, okay. and an indis- total, literal. Yeah. I mean, let me take you to the, the first part of your talk, the... Hegelian thing about the down, the, how you put it, downward synthesis. Yeah, where what you get at the end is yeah. not the highest synthesis, yeah, yeah. but okay. the lowest of the lowest. Okay. Sheet, remainder. Okay, excellent. But I mean, you're using the French Revolution. Of course, the French Revolution, Hegel, you know, welcomes it and then has all the stuff, as we know, about abstract freedom, about the terror and all the rest of it. But then Napoleon comes. So, I mean, the idea of a certain, as you put it, retrospective kind sort of uh, necessity, retrospectively uh, constructed, still exists there. You know, so there is Napoleon, he's the spirit on horseback in Vienna. Then we have Zidlech Kaid, you know, he's coming in Prussia. So there is a sense, okay, you don't want to call it eschatology. But, you know, by making this big distinction between Hegel and Marx, and Hegel is more kind sort of radical and so on than Marx, I'm not sure that, you know, this is right in terms of what we read about Hegel. Now, of course, if you're telling me that your enemy is Charles Taylor, who has some strange idea of a puppeteer that you know, mm. you know, moves the history yeah. of the puppets. Of course, I mean, if that is the case, I don't know. I mean, you're absolutely right. But that is not, you know, what uh, most people who naively read Hegel like me, you know, I don't read all the kinds they of literature. They do read coming confusion in this way. They do. Don't they? I'm asking. Well, not now. They, there is some kind you, of. You mentioned Bradley, Bradley in the 19th century Hegelians here in Britain, but I mean, not today. I mean, you know, who reads that kind of. And, and, but more importantly, why is Marx more eschatological than Hegel? I mean, the wonderful political writings of Marx have nothing to do about eschatology. You know, the 18th Brumaire, you know, sort of all that kind of stuff, which is not about... I mean, of course, the whole of modernity believes in a certain periodization. You keep using the terms postmodernist, pre-modern, modern. Yeah. But this is a modernist, a totally modernist position. Everyone uses those classifications. Yeah. Yeah. Similarly, Hegel, similarly, yeah. Marx. So... Why, I mean, what is the stake between this big kind sort of return to Hegel uh, against... Okay, I will tell you exactly. So, I mean, this is Zizek, this is not yeah. Hegel, that's what I'm saying. You know, sort of, and no, that's great, I mean, I'm not against it. You will it, get the full answer okay. uh, long later into your prison cell in Gulag. <laughs> 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 Sorry, seriously. Yeah, uh, yeah. I will give, tell you exactly where. Yeah. Where Hegel is for me more materialist is precisely where Marx, you know, when he says the all of Minerva takes off only in the evening and at so dusk. on. It flies at dusk. Yeah, yeah, which means Marx does something which for Hegel is absolutely prohibited. It is to adopt now, in present moment, a position of knowledge of history, where history goes, which justifies you in what you are doing now. This position of having somehow transcendent historical knowledge. We are at this point, and then the idea of revolution, 
This was wonderfully developed, but this, this is why I think he's not a Hegelian, Lukács, precisely in this sense, in history and class consciousness. This idea of a proletarian revolution as a totally transparent act, yeah. not in any metaphysical yeah. sense, but like we know where history is going and we jump on that wagon and we do something and we know what we do. This Hegel prohibits. Okay, but let me then remind and, and you this is why okay, Hegelian teleology. Yeah. Yeah. This is, of course, it's teleology, yeah. but it's always retroactive okay. theology. Okay. It's now, never forward. Let me remind if you anything, sorry, just to finish, Hegel was totally perplexed, and I agree with it. You remember? Remember Hegel's last political writing was violent, conservative. I admit it. Sure. Reaction to English reform bill where Hegel simply didn't know what to do with it, and so on. I think that we should recapture a little bit of this Hegelian radical uncertainty, yeah. which again doesn't mean we should do nothing. Sorry. Okay, I mean, in terms of the uncertainty, in a sense, in that part of your argument, your talk today, you go towards a kind of relativism, which is your greatest enemy. I mean, you know, you are the guy who keeps attacking relativism. But let me say something different, however. Kant in one of these uh, revolutionary writings, I think either Perpetual Ooh, Kant. Peace, uh, yeah, Kant, yeah. yes, or Cosmopolitan, I don't remember which, he has this wonderful idea that nature, who is uh, a kind sort of the spirit for mm -hmm. him, will end up in cosmopolitanism, eventually, in perpetualism. And then he has one lovely little paragraph, which says, of course I do have my doubts, but because I'm Kant, because I'm an important philosopher, I'm going to come out and say these things, because by just saying them, I help them come about. In other words, that the role of the intellectual, the philosopher, is while he has his doubts, to participate and therefore push the historical uh, trajectory towards that end that in his mind is also necessary will come about. So to that extent, and this is, I mean, you know, in terms of your work, in terms of your political writings, you go out on political activity, you go out and say, this is what uh, has to happen. You ask me all the time, and you will ask uh, the, the Greek left leader on Wednesday in Zagreb, you know, sort of what is your program, what you're going to do after the day you get to come. Mm. And of course, that means that you want a program. In other words, you want to become a part of this historical mm. becoming, and therefore you create a narrative, perhaps even an eschatological, teleological, precisely because you want the end to come faster or to come at all. So to that extent, it is not just a question of some kind of stupid mechanical eschatological necessity that you, know, you are projecting. It is seeing yourself as part of that process and therefore using whatever means are available to you, including perhaps a kind of stupid uh, history um, uh, narrative of necessity in order to push in that direction. I got your point, it's a very nice point, but first, let me go step by step. We don't have time to go into it, yeah. but uh, the two of you, Katrina and uh, Rebecca, have written a lot about it, that, uh, you know, uh, relativism, why not? I claim, I don't have time to develop it now, that uh, what Hegel calls absolute knowing is the most radical self-relativization that you can imagine. Absolute knowing is not I know everything, because for Hegel, and Lukács develops this nicely in history and class consciousness. For Hegel, the problem with relativism is not that it's relativist, but it's not relativist enough. It always presupposes a kind of an outside metaposition from which you see the relativity. 
Relativity, uh, absolute knowing means when you yourself fall fully into relativism without so I don't see any problem there. Again, what you said about politics, yes, but all I want is this type of uh, that we fundamentally accept that the result is radically unknown. Like that, that we don't dismiss the fact, like, uh, I put it like this. The way Hegelian canning of reason is read is usually, nonetheless, in the bad theological sense. Like, for example, uh, I am a bad guy, I kill people to take power. But if my, names happen to, my name happens to be Julius Caesar, nonetheless, I'm an unconscious tool of higher necessity and precisely in following my basis instincts, I play a role, blah, blah, blah. The way I try to read Hegel, and here I draw your attention to a book that I like very much. This is, after the ladies we have here, maybe the last man who wrote a good book on Hegel, Gerard Lebrun, his two books, that uh, Hegel is not saying this. Hegel is saying, no, for example, Lebrun takes the case of Rubicon. It doesn't mean it was destined from the very beginning for Julius Caesar to cross Rubicon. No, at that time he had the freedom. But to put it in these wonderful dialectical terms, once he crossed Rubicon, crossing Rubicon retroactively became his fate. And that's absolutely fundamental for Hegel. Cunning of reason does not mean that you are, that there is a big agency which, as it were, uh, use, uh, uses you for its hidden purposes. No, it means more something what Stephen Jay Gould would have called exaptation. You do something, it goes wrong, and then in a contingent, improvised way. So this is why I even think that Hegel, what he calls cunning of reason, is even more uh, cunning of unreason, in the sense that one thing that you can be sure of is that Whatever you do, it will always go wrong. And Hegel's problem is how to make use of things going wrong. That's just a more modest position. And yes, I'm modest here. I'm not afraid what you said. But I agree with you where I say the art is not to, to uh, connect this to yesterday's debate. Isn't our problem how not to draw from this radical openness the cheap, liberal, modest, relativist position in the sense of things may go wrong, so let's not do anything radical, let's be modest, and so on. This, is this position is false. One should go to the end, risk everything uh, for it, and so on, and so on. Just two more things, very briefly. Hegel, French Revolution, as you, Rebecca, demonstrated nicely in the book, there is nonetheless one big difference. Kant, for example, is fully aware of the ambiguity of French Revolution, but he simply keeps the two sides apart. On the one hand, this fucking who cares, inner feeling, enthusiasm, big, then you go to Paris, whoa, 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 they are chopping heads, and so on. Hegel is the only one I know, and I hope I'm correctly referring to you, who is ready radically to bring the two sides together. Yes, French Revolution is the ultimate sublime event, and yes, it did necessarily turn into horror. He is not afraid to think the two together. Hegel knew absolutely and accepted it that there is no 89 without 93. 
You know, that you cannot say, oh, if the French were to be intelligent, 89 would be enough, no Jacobins, and so on. That's for me, Hegel. Uh, uh, as when you mentioned Kant, no, that's another sensitive topic, namely war, uh, perpetual peace. I'm here a Hegelian, in the sense that I think that Hegel's deduction of the necessity of war should be absolutely reasserted and not dismissed in some kind of, you know, Prussian militarism and so on. It's a wonderful case of how, for Hegel, the end of history doesn't mean some perpetual inertia of some well-ordered bourgeois state. Abstract negativity, and you also, in the necessity of war, you find something very strange in Hegel. You find almost something like a non-dialectical repetition. War has to erupt, but not in any progressive sense. Wars are always the same. So we have here something that, again, shouldn't have happened in Hegel. You know, at the ultimate point, the end of history, war returns. War is abstract negativity, but again, not in a progressive sense. It's not that through this war you get a higher war or whatever. And I think that we should focus... That's what I try to do with my tiny big book of two pounds, uh, uh, less than nothing. Uh, for example, I found a similar moment in Hegel's theory of madness. He says the threat of madness is always here. It's never aufgehoben in the sense of, you know, there is a moment of madness to become a rational being. Hegel has deeply in himself this idea that the, the threat of abstract negativity is never in a simple, maybe pseudo-Hegelian sense, aufgehoben in some final concrete unit. It stays there as an enabling ground. Now, I'm not saying here, with Alenka and my Slovene gang, we are here, like the party hasn't yet decided what is, what is true. <laughs> Where do we exactly stand with Hegel here? But again, what I like to emphasize is this moment in Hegel which totally undermines the idea that Hegel meant by absolute knowing any type of, you know, end of history and so on. Like, what I like to mention is, look at the introduction to his uh, philosophy of history, where Hegel says something commonsensical, very wise and accurate. When talking about Russia and United States, he says, we are not yet in a position to develop the notion of these countries, next century will be theirs. It's not so stupid, no, in 1815 or when, to say that the 20th century will be Russian and American. And, or, or not to mention how many times, if you look, what for me is the summit of Hegelian system, but you are not yet mature to accept it. You know, Hegel is the thinker which has his uh, site which is half dead, like all that cultural analysis, history. Then the most lively Hegel is, of course, philosophy of nature and so on. No? And there, how often Hegel is relevant. He simply says, we don't yet know, we don't yet know enough to develop this. Now, I'm not trying to draw any big conclusion of this, just I see in this proofs that what Hegel meant as absolute knowing is what you, Frank, mentioned with this Entschlussstadt and so on. It's an existential position which has absolutely nothing to do with finally we reached absolute or whatever. I stop, Good. I talk too much. Good. Okay, let's open it to... Uh, I'm myopic, you will distribute, you will give voice, yes. Uh, well, I, I want to ask you a question about the way you relate, uh, you know, Badu and Hegel in your corpus. She's the authority. 
Seriously, he wrote a wonderful text reading but you as Hegelian against his own. Sorry, go on. In your interpretation, uh, the Hegelian absolute is this non-evolutionary process of failed uh, attempts at total (laughs) self-identification. These attempts, whether we call them notions in the Hegelian sense or fantasies in the Lacanian sense, are self-related paradigms or uh, frameworks. Yes, what do you mean exactly? Yeah, but uh, now if we agree that uh, that this name for the absolute is event, then the question is, uh, there is no substantial relation or dialectics between events as, as you know, plural events uh, in, Badu, in, in Badu's thought. And that's precisely why Badu can ignore political economy or even class struggle in his philosophy and This is an interesting point. Can you develop it minimally? I don't get it, but I would like to believe you. I don't get it. Why? Because there is no relation between events, but you cannot get political economy. Yes, because uh, then class struggle, you have to de- develop it, you know, in a, in a, uh, you know, in a sequence mm-hmm. when there I, are no relations with events at all, you know, with plural events, you know, uh, then you can't really, you can ignore, you know, that, that you know, this uh, developing some sort of political economy or uh, theory of class struggle and still be some sort of communist. But my problem is that can you, as a Hegelian Marxist, uh, like Badu, talk about absolute as subject, but not as substance, yeah. because uh, maybe in your case the Hegelian formula must be reversed. You know, like uh, in, a, in a way, maybe we should say that absolute is not only a subject but also a substance. Uh, do you know who already proposed this reversal? No. But I tend not to agree him, Gadamer. In his Wahrheitung Methode, he says that the task of hermeneutics is to turn around Hegel, to see subject as grounded in a substantial hermeneutic horizon, and so on and so on. But, uh, uh, you know, maybe... Okay, again, another nice question to answer it means another three hours talk. Just this, that maybe the key is, again, in... What do we mean by the term absolute? Absolute for me is just... Absolute means a certain structure of self-referentiality, and it's not absolute in any stupid sense of, you know, absolute. Absolute is something that changes, that can disappear, whatever. But I would uh, maybe uh, put it in this way, to give you a formula. This is a very tricky question, because I think that you are obviously half at least a Lacanian. Then you must know, do you know a wonderful book by François Balmès, Ce que Lacan, is it Lacan or Heidegger? Ce que Lacan did the letter on the relation between Heidegger and Lacan, where he draws attention to how the term sub- subjectivization is more of the early Lacan, where subjectivation means uh, subjective through symbolic appropriation, but the true enigma is late Lacan's notion of subject where, surprisingly, in his, I think, Logique du Fantasme and so on, Lacan violently, in a good sense, returns to Cartesian cogito in an explicit move uh, again Heidegger. Why, why that? So again, it all depends what do you mean, what do we mean by, what do we mean by subject? In this sense, I'm tempted to 
remain Hegelian because substance is for me the full consistent other. And the point is not to subjectify substance in the sense of some absolute subject reappropriate substance, but in the sense that the gap that separates the subject from substance is conceived as internal to substance itself. In this sense, formal, materialist, I consider myself a Christian. In the sense that what happens in Christianity? You feel abandoned by God. The Christian solution is not, ooh, pray a lot, squeeze your balls, torture yourself, and God will take you back to him, but think about the moment of crucifixion. Exactly God himself was at the same position of abandonment than you are. So Christian solution is precisely when you feel radically abandoned by God. This separation from God is immanent to God himself. That was Christ on the cross and so on. In this sense, I am for subjectivity. It has nothing to do with this. And, sorry, maybe this is what Balmes thinks why Lacan keeps the term subject. Maybe, and Hegel knew this, we, when we talk about subject, we are too much part of this, maybe even pseudo, Fichtean, Marxist, where subjectivity means, you know, creativity, productivity, domination. For Lacan, subject is at its most fundamental a passive position, a position even of an impotent observer. The fundamental attitude of subject is not an agent. You become a subject through experiencing failure. Yes, but what I meant was that there is a relation between these attempts, these notions in Hegel. There is some sort of like... This here you touch a big problem. You, you don't have like a sequence of plural events. You just have singular events. You know, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm mistaken. But no, no, no. See. This is yeah. a key problem. Maybe we should ask the master here because just to introduce you and as an amusing element, I once, when Badiou talks about love, no? I once asked him a typical male chauvinist question. Okay, but can I have at the oh, same God, time... How come you did that? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, uh, like, like uh, can I have multiple, like, I have an event with that woman in another city, I have an event with that. And he said, yes, why not, typically. He even said at some point, but I'm doing that. You know? <laughs> Let's not go into that. We need you here to intervene, comrade. Maybe just, I mean, as everything for about you, an event is as soon as it becomes an event through the consequences, a multiplicity. So every event, this is why in being event says every event is the in-between of two events, every event is internally multiple. So you, so I mean... Internally multiple. Yes, I mean... The, you don't have plural, uh, you know, events. But what do you mean by... I mean, uh, ev this is why every event is universal and imminently related to other events. How? For example, relate in an imminent way French Revolution to October Revolution. Is this part of the same historical... What? No, I mean, she's completely correct in pointing out that he basically thinks there, let's put it like that, singular aisles of history. Yeah. With, I mean, worlds fully separated, fully ruled by different transcendental... But what is common to them is the very rupture that the event introduces, like the clash within the, each mundane civilization. This is what unites them. Like the instantiation of an exception that then is, uh, introduces consequences. This very moment of rupture is what relates them. Thank you. 
and they are effervescent, as he says. You know, they disappear. So to that yes. extent, yeah, but, has, but sorry, we're not discussing Badiou today. We're discussing Zizek. So let us. Badiou will be here in uh, a few Badiou months. Part you can of come. In a you can come. Yes, unfortunately, okay. Uh, you can come and ask Badiou himself. So uh, a few more people are interested. But he's not. He's not Zizek's uh, Badiou's agent, you know, he's Zizek. Okay, so, yeah. No, no, I like to be Badiou's agent. In this sense, I can sell stuff, I can hurt in the sense of, <laughs> In the sense of secret agent, you mean? Sorry? Secret agent. No, I'm not secret agent, I'm a public agent, secret enemy, I prefer that. <laughs> okay, gentlemen. Please. Yeah. First of all, uh, I agree with the critique of uh, post-colonial theory that you offer. And regarding the more effective universalism that Indians are uh, creating. But uh, the more effective universalism you talk about is, is of the so-called subalterns, which are Brahmin elites of India. But you are assuming India as a singular entity. That's possible. And history of the singular entity is less than 65 years. Before that, it is more than 1600 languages and many cultures and many religions, much more variety than Europe, which is a continent. Mm. Yeah. And they don't consider it to be a subcontinent. Mm. It's a nation state, which yeah. doesn't make any sense. Now, I understand all that, and I understand politics behind it, and I understand, and I agree with you and everything. And we are also, like, I'm a second with fighting against India, and quite a lot of bloodshed we have been through. But, I have a language, and that language has potential to offer some kind of cultural and political space which we have successfully constructed in the past, like 1710, in the first uh, Sikh ruler in Punjab, we were the first one in that region at least to snatch the land from the landlords and distribute in the cultivators. And regardless of the religion, Muslim cultivators, Sikh cultivators, everybody. So if, if I have to translate my language in Hegelian terms or in any other terms when I do not even relate with the Christian theme of death of God which in my understanding plays quite crucial role in the Hegelian dialectics mm. and, and through, throughout it, it never goes away right the whole nigger why do I have to go through that like I don't mind what you do in Slovenia or what the Germans do in Germany. My question is, if the other languages have the potential to construct their own spaces, and potentially they might be able to offer a different, which I don't call to be a discursive space, maybe something non-discursive, a different space, a different model, can the West ever allow that space or the wound has to be cured through their sphere? That's my question. It's a very good question. All I uh, put it, uh, I just made a very specific point 
which is that <coughs> what but this is not a point that can be applied mechanically all around. Like, I'm not saying, for example, today to the Chinese, learn English or whatever, and you will. Of course, all I'm saying is how. Uh, for, uh, for example, I don't know about your specific situation, but what interests me is, that was the crucial moment, of how what you fight when you fight colonization is usually an immanent reaction to colonization, not in the sense that you become subservient to it, whatever. But for example, again, I just ask you this, again, I repeat this naive point that I made. The India, I'm not even saying I necessarily like it, but the dream of the new India that they are striving for today. Can you... Uh, it's for me, okay, I'll put it, it's, uh, I'll put it like this. What surprises me again and again is how true, brutal economic imperialism always needs authentic local cultures. That's why I don't like this standard. My enemy was this attitude of there is bad pseudo-universal imperialism and we can resist it through sticking to our particular roots and so on. Maybe I'm especially sensitive to this coming from Europe. Because, for example, in France, you have the so-called Grèce movement, Alain de Benoit and so on, who are precisely saying this. They say, we have nothing against multiculturalism. We just want for the French the same rights to keep our culture, and so on, and so on, and so on. What I want just to do is something very basic, is to see when you experience something as a trauma dislocating you, to see a chance of liberation in what appears as a trauma. So, in order to answer you, and then I will stop fully, I don't know enough about your Punjab society, it would have been, but when you say you uh, got rid of the law of the master's land, and the, uh, who were the masters? What was the inner tension of your society? I don't know enough about that, you see. It was uh, like... Uh we were not ruling the land, Mughals were ruling 1710. Muslims were Muslims ruling. Were ruling. It was old feudal culture where one master owned like 10,000 acres yeah. and cultivators worked for them. When we started ruling in 1710, we snatched the land from all the feudal lords and distributed among the cultivators. And what happened then? Okay, but let's not go into the details no, no, of uh, uh, Indian yeah. history now. What happened then? We defeated again, yeah. and things came to uh, the same place. You mean new masters took over? No, or? no, no. We the Sikh rule ended in a few years, okay. and the Muslims started ruling again. <laughs> okay. Again, but, we started ruling. Yeah. Again, we constructed that system. Yeah. In but which I mean, there is no feudal lord. My point was between seven, 1978 and 1992, India killed more than 150,000 of people. We are fighting yeah. against India. Yeah. Okay. When yeah. you mention India, I am. I automatically become part of that so-called effective universalism. That I have no reason to endorse to. My point is, 
my language for me defines a cultural and political space how do i realize that no i will give you a very short answer now i got it I, uh, this is the point I don't fully agree with. Uh, she simplifies it very much with Susan Buckmore's Hegel and Haiti. But she says very nicely how within a nation, those different religious blah blah minorities, they are the site of universalism. I think that even if you experienced yourself fighting the Muslims, you were not simply more particular. By insisting of your, on your particular identity, getting the land, you were the, de facto the site of universality there. Yeah, and that is, I think, your correct position, and I was a bit you know, sort of surprised that you didn't give it an, uh, uh, earlier. First, the language and the culture can claim the position of the universal. Yeah. Second, in a particular situation like that, but all over the world, these are also the part of no part. So in that sense, yes. as a part of no part, can claim again the position of the universal. So I think that in a sense, your, the last part of your talk, mm. which did mm. not link very well with the earlier, you know, so has that problem that in a sense, you kind of claim that English language or that kind of universalism mm. is the only universalism that exists and no, to that extent no. can be co-opted yeah. to the Hegelian no, no, no. position. But Sorry. it's absolutely not no, no, true. No. I mean, wait that me. is what the no. gentleman said. No, no, nonetheless, wait a minute. The problem yeah. is that yeah. today with global capitalism, English language has a certain role. Which, but another thing I want to make to confirm your point. For example, for me, one of the greatest historical tragedies and I'm not saying this because of that bullshit movie with Robert De Niro uh, missions or whatever I'm talking about the Jesuit Republic of Paraguay. Mm. Can you imagine what would have happened if Jesuits were to be allowed to rule in Paraguay? A wonderful thing. <laughs> Do you know that already when they were ruling Paraguay they, they were already establishing, how is it called? Garano or what? The I don't want to appear racist. Okay, the, the local language, all terms that I use are racist, but let's call it the native language. They were already printing books in them. That's my reproach to Chavez when he says, oh, gave the book to, to, to Obama, blah, blah, blah. But fuck it, who is Chavez? He's Spanish, he's speaking Spanish. The true heroes were, the true universalists were Jesuits, even if there were elements of religious terror, but they were building Indians, aborigines as a nation, printing their books and so on. And this is one of the most terrifying crimes where, the same as you said, you know when united Portugal from the north and Spain, Argentina from the south, Brazil, without any reason at all, they attacked, massacring them all. Paraguay, because precisely, Paraguay would have been something like your Punjab succeeding, you know, their own language, their own culture, and so on. So I totally agree here. Yes, that was the site of universality. Okay. Uh, uh, I think, gentlemen, there are another Slovenian. Come on, Alan. Yes. I just want to go back to the question of nature. You were saying that nature gets its meaning only through our being here, our presence on Earth, yeah? So nature or geontology doesn't have any meaning without our presence. Only through language does it gain meaning. So, and then I got an association. I was watching a documentary on Deleuze, Abessedeh, where he talks about how he's re revolted of the human relationship with animals and that the only relationship with animals that he praises is the animal relationship with, with animals. But, uh, so if you can, if you can uh, relate to that. I mean, uh, my question is, how can we 
build like an ecological consciousness or sensitivity toward the ontic, toward the animal, the non-human being in nature, or do we just I don't know enjoy our lives and go on with our capitalist ways of relations and lifestyle and destroy it? I mean, nature is only here for us to enjoy it. So without us, it doesn't have any meaning anyway. Uh, there are many paradoxes in what you are saying. Okay, again, it's, my God, it's half an hour answer at least. What, what I would say is that the main trap to be avoided is to be, it's to be anthropocentric in the very self-debasement. For example, what I see as the obvious paradox of so-called deep ecology is, you know how they like to say, not only animals, even trees, even habitats have their rights. Yes, but fuck it, they cannot talk about that. We humans are nonetheless presupposed as the only agent of universal rights of all others. This is a nice example of how, even if uh, so-called deep ecologists like to empirically, ontically, humiliate humanity. We are just a subspecies here, other, again, not only animals, but trees, valleys, rocky mountains have their habitat rights. But nonetheless, the only side of these rights are we humans, or a counter-argument. If we just brutally exploit nature and so on. Well, in some sense, animals are doing this. Let's not... Uh, idealized nature. Uh, nature itself is full of catastrophes where one species overexploited the habitat, screwed it up, ruined everything, and so on and so on. So again, my first condition of authentic radical ecology would have been to drop, to attack not only the, the, the usual suspects, you know, technological imperialism, we are exploiting nature, and so on. But especially this false self-denigration, and so on, which still fully asserts, like human arrogance. For example, of course, I, up to a point, I agree even with Peter Singer's position, although if I ever saw, you know, evil Gaze, like gaze which can kill you is. When I gave a talk at Princeton and I just grabbed a chicken sandwich and then Peter Singer observed me like, how can I do that? <laughs> Evil, gaze killing. I buy that, but what I'm saying is just, there is a great danger of extremely arrogant anthropocentric projection there. For example, Daniel Dennett, who is not a complete idiot, he often simplifies things, but he gives interesting examples. Daniel Dennett mentioned somewhere that uh, in a documentary, or I don't know where, I think it's, it's in, in his Freedom Evolves book, I'm not sure, how he saw two apes fighting and one ape tearing off two males fighting for a woman, a testicle from another ape. And he said, obviously, there was a terrible cry of pain, the animal was suffering terribly. But then he says, ten minutes later, the same animal was what lo it looked like uh, gladly, joyfully jumping around. So fuck it. Maybe it wasn't this. You know what I mean? It's very open and uncertain. While, of course, we shouldn't be Cartesians and claim that when animal seems to cry, it's just some me mechanical sound. It's, it's very, it's an, a really an open enigma. And this is how I also read Derrida. Derrida is not his, uh, the animal that I am. It's not a simple 
new age, you know, ooh, and then you end up with this, uh, you end up like Prince Charles, who I heard, he's also talking to the trees and so on, no? I mean, hugging I mean, the trees. sorry? Hugging the trees. Yeah, hugging even. I hope not going a step further and like, okay, whatever, no? No, but you see what I mean? I mean, it's, it's, I think here I agree with but you, who said that ecology precisely because it is a real problem. It's also a terrifying, crucial site of struggle for me. Ideological struggles are almost focused in, in ecology today. Okay, uh, let me take three questions perhaps together and then have a... a but there are four hands. Who is liquidated? Uh, <laughs> we'll take four. Okay, okay the uh, gentleman... My first question is, piggybacks uh, on the previous one, and of, of, I agree with the critique of deep ecology, but nonetheless... You were going to talk about the limits of Hegel. Um, can Hegel think the, the Anthropocene, so the last week, uh, as some of you might know, the CO2 has reached uh, 400 parts per million, so that's as high, you know, whatever, that's 650,000 years. So I say that again, 650,000 years. So um, the, the development of spirit, um, see... As you said, it's self-referential, but if we're, if we're going to have a communist eschatology, does it make sense to think the Anthropocene as one what precisely triggers uh, universalization? So universalization, is that just a vector within the realm of, of, yeah. uh, of ideas, or is there not a trigger happening at the moment from, you know, I don't like the word, but nature? I see. Um, yeah, that's just a question. Um, okay, uh, so my question is to do with uh, language, to do with the English language, um, which um, went to India and worked in India and returned from India. And uh, on its return, it brought features from uh, the Indian uh, form of life, um, such as the tag question at the end, which forms um, the end of a sentence like in it, um, which causes horror to people like Peter Hitchens and uh, Nigel Farage and so on. And so now they have this experience, it's very dialectical, where they say, oh, we're being colonised, we're being colonised um, by this returning experience. So my question is, how can uh, Nigel Farage take that experience and become Nigel X? Like... <laughs> <laughs> okay, an excellent idea. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I, actually, I sort of have the flip side of that question, which is I, I agree with you that it's completely philosophically sound about finding the universal between different forms of, sort mm. of oppression, or however you want to put it, mm. the particular of the particular. But what I wonder is um, what happens next? I mean, I think the crucial question is. I think cricket is a really good example to think about this, actually, because you have this game that the British brought to India and to the Commonwealth, and now the Commonwealth has totally kicked you know, the ass of the English. But yet, it's, it's the site of India-Pakistan nationalism, how these two different yeah. groups are fighting each other. So how do we, what do we do next when, we, when the two groups, the particular of the particular, fight with each other? I mean, what, what's the next step? Okay, let us stop here for uh, the first three and then we'll take another round. I will try to be as short as possible. First, uh, yeah. First Anthropocene. Uh, of course, Hegel, the way he wrote it, wasn't able to deal with it. It's even clear, as Fred Jensen noted, noted that, for example, how Hegel, how 
although Hegel wrote a lot reading Adam Smith about uh, 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 capitalism and so on, but his notion of capitalism is still a pre-modern one, a little bit of division of labor. Hegel didn't yet have the concept of a modern factory and so on. And the irony here is not that this is something that kind of eludes Hegel, but that it's Hegel didn't see the very radically Hegelian dimension of what was emerging. And the greatness of Marx is that he discovered that modern capitalism is much more Hegelian than even Hegel thought. And in the same sense, I don't think, I don't see a big problem with Anthropocene. How is the guy called who developed the idea? No, 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 but the one who wrote the book on... Yeah, some geologists. Yeah, no, no. Uh, what I mean is that uh, is that uh, uh, you see it's too. E I mean, how do we read the idea of Anthropocene? It's not enough just to say thereby we are forced to take awareness of ourselves as one of the species on Earth. Because precisely with Anthropocene, we become the universal species. And not only in the philosophical sense that we have access to conceptual universality, but in the quite literal sense that we become directly a geological factor and so on and so on. So again, the only thing I would say is that a Hegelian approach here would be maybe the most effective tool against different New Age temptations and so on that, that, uh, that dwell here. Uh, as to, uh, because all I, okay, all I can tell you is that in which city book of mine, I think it's Living in the End Times, I did try to deal with precisely Anthropocene. I think it's one of those cases where Hegel is literally needed to to clarify the situation. What you said about languages, it's a wonderful point. The only thing I can add is that uh, this particular of a particular, you know where I see true universality of languages? Not in some Esperanto stupidities or English as universal language, but when one language uses words which are used as borrowed from a foreign language, but really nobody uses them in this sense in that other language, you know. Like, so that as if modern French invented its own sub-English, from cinema theory, I know. What in English you call a tracking shot? In France they call traveling. But no one in English uses, you know, it's as if they invented their own... In, and these are maybe the, this particular of particular, you know, where the French imagine their own li, li English. The universalization for me would have been for the English to adopt this double falsification as their own, as it were. And the philosophical example I usually give is that Derrida was, in a way, intelligent, radical enough to do this. It's clear that the American reading of Derrida was a misreading up to a point, simplified. But then at a certain point, Derrida, knowing that this was a misreading, started almost, it's not quite, to imitate his American imitators. That's all his political, ethical, religious turn. And look what wonderful results we got, I mean. Or again, to go back to cinema theory. You know, film noir, 
It's clear that it's a pseudo notion. Stupid French didn't know what happens in Hollywood, they invented the term, which totally misrepresented Hollywood. But look what then happened. Hollywood itself took over this term and produced some good movies imitating a false image. And this is the big lesson of Hegel that I didn't have time to develop. Hegel, what Hegel praises, not only synthesis in the sense of this is one-sided, that is one-sided. What Hegel knows is that the greatness of spirit is the power of abstraction. Everyone can say, oh, I'm a multiple person, I have this, I have that. But then, the art of language is to say, no, this is the main feature. It's, in, it's a symbolic, you know, the power of simplification, which is why I advise you to read a wonderful book, Alexander Luria, Memoirs of a Mnemonist, or what? It's a nice case from Stalinism, nothing to do with Stalinism, of a guy who had perfect memory. Like, he could remember, pay, and the problem was because of this, he was practically unable to think. Because being unable to forget, he was not able to think, concept, you know, he knew too much, so it's a beautiful Hegelian paradox. He had to develop special techniques, not like medieval uh, scholastic to remember, but to forget, you know. He had to, in our way, complex mechanism not to remember it all to be able to approach thinking, and it's typical. Luria is an intelligent guy. He had sympathy for psychoanalysis. He develops the entire subjective attitude from this illness. How, because of this remembering too much, this guy was not able to do a performative act in the sense of now I decide this. He was in a permanent state of awaiting for some big event. It was never possible for the event to happen. Sorry, the last one was cricket. This cricket is a cricket is a wonderful example, and I like precisely your pessimist conclusion. Yes, I agree. It's not that then we will have a paradise. Then the real fight begins, you know. <laughs> Although I must say that there is something even more ironic in cricket. It's so beautiful that cricket emerged as the universal post-British Empire legacy. And it's universal. I remember before he got crazy, 15, 20 years ago, Robert Mugabe was asked, what is for you the most precious legacy of British colonization? He said cricket, of course. But what I like about cricket is that it's the Britishness at its most ridiculous. First, I'm stupid, can you? I don't. Once I was sitting in Oxford and observed the game for five hours, I didn't understand anything. It's, I simply couldn't connect the points. It's one guy there with a strange feminized gesture throws a ball. Some other guys start to run there. I never got the connection, you know. Somebody explained it to me that the only people who really understand cricket are from late 30s, 1930s, you know when KGB run Oxford. You have to be gay and the KGB agent. You know? <laughs> Only way. But you it know what? I, it was Cambridge, not Oxford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. what I what I want to say is that I like this. This is for me how uh, a totally ridiculous, ambiguous game. And connect me if I was wrong. Somebody told me that a ridiculous way of throwing the ball came from the fact that originally 
It was women's game. And that man had to imitate a certain... <laughs> what I would like to hear... Do you have it, British? Well, I love these stories of origins. You know how the origin of gold. Two Scottish shepherds walking with sticks. One of them, by mistake, kicks a stone... Uh, falls into a hole and, ah, oh, we invented golf or whatever, you know. I would like to hear the, the origins of cricket in this. But in terms of cricket, I mean, uh, when you say that it is very characteristic of the British attitude or a conception okay, of yeah, people yeah. about British attitude, is that this is one of the very few games, I suppose baseball is uh, similar to that, baseball where you have well, always yeah. one person, yeah. one person confronting a whole team, 11. So there is the batsman, it's just him, in total existential solitude yeah. and 11 guys around him trying to kill him. So that is, you know, very much the British individualist attitude. Yeah, but is, is the one always alone or does everyone occupy that place? In, Eventually the... everyone, but at every one point in time, diachronically, not synchronically, synchronically they are but diachronically it is one against 11. Now, that is quite unique. In most games, you have you know, the same number of players on both, on both yeah. sides. One against one or 11 against 11. Here you have but, one But it's still 11. better than that pseudo-gay obscenity of baseball when one guy is down and then 20 guys jump <laughs> for the I don't want even to imagine what is happening. <laughs> okay, let's get the last That's not round. British, what they are doing. Round, uh, Andrew was there, I think the gentleman was there, and the gentleman at the back. Are you implying uh, that Andrew is not a gentleman, or what? No, gangster. I'm a gangster. Gangster. My question is also about this idea that spirit is the wound of nature. Yeah. And, you know, I was really struck by the passage from Aaron Schuster that you read, because it sounded so Schopenhauerian, this idea that optimism is the last refuge of pessimism in a certain way. And, and then, of course, that made me think that, that you know, Parsifal is also very Schopenhauerian at that point for Wagner. So... So there is this kind of subtext there, and um, it's really the, the revolutionary Wagner of 1848, I think, whom you would more mm. you know, look to mm. as, uh, as, as, as a thinker here, and, um, and as a, you know, for, for political inspiration. And with Schopenhauer, we get an ethics of compassion as sort of the ultimate upshot of this uh, separation from uh, nature. And uh, whereas, you know, I take it, you want to advocate a politics of solidarity as opposed to that ethics of separation. So I'm wondering if there's some way in which we can think about uh, an ecology that would be based on a concept of uh, solidarity rather than compassion, where the, the, the task would be, as it were, to look for the point of the universal struggle in that nature. Okay. Um, so the uh, liberal and uh, postmodern critique of Hegelian Marxism somehow is that it's a closed system uh, and the totality means totalitarianism. Yeah. And that therefore Hegel is, and Marx are Stalin, and Stalin is Hegel, uh, and, uh, and so on. Uh, and the solution then is that everything is relative, we need to evaluate contextuality, and it ends up in a kind of very fragmentation, fragmented way of thinking, uh, that in political reformism on the political yeah. level, and so on. And, uh, my question is then, wouldn't, uh, for resisting this, wouldn't it be the best thing to reload Hegel in such a way that the way we are doing philosophy uh, is precisely like Hegel's logic, uh, very systematic, yeah, very systematic totality, where you have science logic, reasons logic, and begriffs logic, and each of the three logics again decomposes into three logics, uh, and so on, that you have a, a constant dialectical movement of the Hegel. Uh, <coughs> this be the, the best uh, way to do it. But now if I look at your 
talk that you were just giving. Eh? You're starting with a joke, then it's about deadlocks and redoubling of impossibilities, mm. negation, then you go to history, Heidegger, nature, mm. Gegenstoß, identity, India, colonialism, universalism. I got the point. Precisely this way of your you are doing philosophy, the way you are presenting, the way you are writing books, isn't it precisely a postmodern chaos of categories, references, stories, jokes that are not connected in such a dialectical, uh, logical way at the level of the logic of form uh, of philosophy, mm-hmm. the way we are doing uh, philosophy? So why do you preach the return and the reloading? Of Hegel, but at your own uh, level of form of philosophy, it's completely postmodern and non-Hegelian. So, isn't Zizek then in the end at the level of the, philo- of, of the form of philosophy a postmodernist uh, and a non-Hegelian? So it's a little bit like Zizek uh, is a little bit, or your philosophy is a little bit like. Uh, cooking the eggs and to find some ingredients somewhere uh, in. Uh, Okay, but he's accusing you of performative contradiction. Yeah. Okay, yes, yeah. so, uh, the point. Good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay. And then last one. Okay, uh, you two, two, both, uh, very short, please, so we can finish. Yes, okay, thank First you. First gentleman, because we've got No, no, come on, we yeah, start. Very with. quickly, you, your control of the Hegelian paradigm seems to be still committed to a kind of triangulation. You're just shifting the yeah. starting point yeah. instead of the, mm-hmm. the positive and the immediate determination you're actually starting with the negative um, and then you end up with authentic universality yeah. as your third term is that what you really want because in your in, in um, the latest book you're, you're willing there to suggest even a fourth term and a fifth term um, uh, is okay. in, the, in the dialectic yeah. there, there can be at least a, a, a fourth term and then maybe even a fifth term. So are you wanting, are you committing yourself to a triangulation system? Okay, and final one. I was, um, this is a question about your materialist reversal of Marx. Um, I mean, you make two points over there which sort of tend in slightly different directions. One is that Marx, in a sense, misses the point of Hegel and conceives of alienation as a shell that can just be cast off. And mm-hmm. The other is that Marx is actually more Hegelian than Hegel at certain moments. Now, I mean, I, I was wondering in this light, how would you consider the early Marxist critique of Hegel? Because isn't this precisely one of these moments when paradoxically he is being more Hegelian than Hegel? He's accusing Hegel, rightly or wrongly, quite possibly wrongly, as you say, of confusing the contradictions of the idea with the contradictions in reality, in the thing itself. Which, as you, I hope you know, is very interesting point deployed by Manfred Frank in his first book, which is the only good book he wrote on selling, Unendliche Mangel an Sein. Do you know that all, but all means all, early Marxist critique of Hegel is already found in late Schelling, inclusive on, of, of this apparently very materialist Marxist point that Hegel uh, displaces actual 
antagonisms into merely conceptual uh, contradictions. Right. Please finish. No, no, I actually got that from your work, not from But the terms in which Marx is critical of Hegel are, in a sense, also very reminiscent of the terms in which you're critical of Marx, right? I mean, that um, Marx is, um, uh, when you say that Marx misses the, you know, the whole point of alienation that he sees the something that can just be cast aside, so he's missing the contradictions and the tensions within the thing which are constitutive of the thing. So, okay. so I'm just about, yeah, 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 yeah. One, one. Maybe, okay, I will try to be as short as possible. Let's form the contradiction over there. Yeah, no, 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 I will leave that to the end, maybe, because first, this early Hegel, you know, again, these are excellent questions, one needs time, so very briefly. Uh, my general attitude is nonetheless that for me, the early Marx critique of Hegel, so-called uh, philosophical economic manuscript, German ideology, and so on, is the worst you can imagine. Uh, this is far Bafian. Even Robert Pippin is writing, suggesting that there is, when Marx speaks about positive, essential, the powers, that this is basically a step back from subjectivity to some kind of substantial positive forces and so on. I think all these reversals that young Marx has, you know, like instead of subject being master of the object, dominates... I, I think that only after the failure of Revolution of 48, when, returning to read Hegel, only at that point Marx effectively got some type of understanding of Hegel. As to triangulation, well, I would say even if I speak about Thor or whatever, no, I'm always suspicious of this moment of opening in the sense of we need more. For example, I never got this critique, this fear of binary logic. I think that I'm precisely, if by binary logic you mean a basic opposition, structuring antagonism, I'm totally for it. And as a Hegelian, I claim precisely when you have an apparent plurality, oh, it's not just two, it's this, 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 you should always look for the oppressed one, which you like, if you have A, ver A, B, C, D, and so on. You should say A versus and then one of the others, which condenses all the others, and so on. It's interesting how people usually evoke sexuality here. It's like the binary gender difference versus, I don't know, some of uh, these deconstructionist sexologists claim, oh, the great mistake of Freud was to claim there are only two sexes, there are not only two sexes, there are 20, 30, 40 sexes, or whatever. I mean, but uh, again, in a raw analogy with politics, it's the same as saying, and this sounds then much more revisionist, you know, like there are not only two classes, class struggle, no, there are 30, 40 classes, and so on. I believe in a fundamental antagonism. The theoretical point, not time to develop it now here, is why to have an antagonism you need at least three. That is to say, you have to have a couple and an excessive element which as it were, embodies the deadlock of this couple. This is the authentic complication, which is why one line I wanted to pursue is developed by our good friend from Ljubljana, who couldn't come here, unfortunately, Mladen Dolart. He takes, you remember that, one of the most famous quotes from Kierkegaard. 
that Kierkegaard uh, quotes a Danish uh, humorist, whatever, who says that all of humanity can be subdivided into all people, all human persons, into officers, housemates, and chimney sweepers. Now, it sounds crazy, but you can immediately find a logic in it. Uh, uh, it's uh, officers, male principal, housewives, feminine, and chimney sweeper, the uh, intrusive third element, and so on. So it's not quite continuous. And in this sense, the couple, fundamental antagonism, has to appear like three. You, never, you have two classes and then at least rebel or whatever. But, okay, so in this sense, I am for triangulation. And if anything, I would be tempted to say that it's not even three, it's the repetition. That's why I like Kierkegaard. You know, when Kierkegaard speaks about aesthetic, ethical, religious, it's not really three, it's two. You have the opposition of ethics and aesthetics, and the moment ethical wins, aesthetical returns as religious. In other words, you never get synchronously the three. You get two and then at another level the two. Uh, what you said about uh, uh, that uh, uh, question about uh, Schopenhauer, uh, uh, Parsifal and so on, I'm sorry, again, a mega question, don't have time to answer it properly. You, I hope you know the story of Parsifal. The, uh, the, my dream is to restage Parsifal in a disgustingly, if you know the story, New Age, then Brown style, where in Act 2, you know where Kundry tries to seduce Parsifal, Parsifal says no, and the, the castle of Klingsor disappears, then Parsifal in Act 3, that what if at the end of Act 2, Parsifal is seduced by Kundry, they, to put it bluntly, fuck like crazy, and then in Act 3, Parsifal returns with Kundry to Montsalvat the castle and gives some kind of a Dan Brown Da Vinci Code message. We put too much accent on the male principle. We need yin yang. Kundry will rule with me and so on. The point is not to celebrate it, but to find it the most, uh, the, the worst possible. I think that Zieberberg was on the right track when he made, it was a stroke of a genius in his cinema version of Parsifal, that at the moment of rejecting Kundry's advances, Parsifal young boy turns into a young woman. That we don't need an external intervention of femininity. At the very moment of rejecting women's advances, Parsifal himself turns, and so on and so on. Uh, what about that Schopenhauerian, what does it mean, solidarity against compassion? I agree. Let me give you just one example that I like. The movie should be burned publicly, I hate it. Terence Malick's uh, The Tree of Life. But there is one wonderful line of dialogue towards the end. When uh, Brad Pitt, the father, tells the son, like, apologizing, like, sorry, I was a bad father, and so on. And I think that the son there, it's not yet played by Sean Penn, but the young guy, uh, provides a perfect answer to what it means in authentic Freud, the resolution of Oedipal complex. He said, don't worry, father, we are solidary because I'm as bad as you, I'm even worse as you, you know. That Oedipal resolution is not you drop the father, you adopt the idealist father, but 
you, of course, every puberty adolescent guy knows his father is evil bad. But then, you know, I can beat him. I can be even more evil than my father. And that would be my notion of solidarity, you know. Not, oh, ecological, we are good, and so on. We are, uh, like, that we humans are the meanest, the meanest animal that that can be. We are animal, like... Uh, which is why I like, you know, there are wonderful books that I cannot advise to you but to buy them. There is a short book called Politically Correct Version of the Bible, where you have, maybe you know it, paraphrase of, you know, this best known, one of the biggest hits of the Bible, you know. Although I walk in the valley of tears. No, or shadow, whatever, tears. Yes, tears, I, 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 I fear no evil, and so on. Now, what is this and so on? First, you have the Judith Butler version. I like it. Against this, making fun of this binary logic. No, although I walk in the valley of tears, I feel no, fear no evil because I know that good and evil are just metaphysical binary opposites. No, this is Judith Butler. But then Tom Mitchell told me a wonderful black version from, from, from uh, uh, Chicago Ghetto. Although I walk in the valley of tears, I fear no evil because I'm the meanest motherfucker in the entire valley. You know, like, this would be my solidarity with them. I am the meanest one here. Oh, ah, and yes, the uh, Stalinism totality. You know, not to lose time, but I'm quite serious in what we'll say. Are you aware that the way you described me, jumping here and there, not mentioning obscene jokes, is the way phenomenology of spirit was critically described when it appeared. That this is the standard complaint. Whatever stupid book is this? French Revolution, this, that, perception, and so on. So I wouldn't buy so much the idea. Isn't all this systematic aspect of Hegel more a secondary bearbeitung, as they would say? Secondary bearbeitung of a, of a much... In, in other words, I claim that Hegel is not simply this system... Sorry? No, 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 no. It means that logic is a much more crazy book than it may appear. That it's really a series of failures, you know, like, we try this, it fails, let's try something else. It's a, which is why also, as you probably know, and I did study it, if you go, no, here I must disappoint you, if I were to choose at a gunpoint, you know, like, this is the only serious problem for rational Christian people, which is the greatest book of all times, phenomenology on, uh, or logic, no? <laughs> At the gunpoint, I would, what do you, I don't mention some capital or bullshit like that. Uh, no, at, at the gunpoint, I would have chosen logic, nonetheless. And it's so clear how often Hegel cheats and improvises there. We, we can get a hint of this, of the changes that he Envisaged, I think, if you compare the different versions, no encyclopedia, great logic, encyclopedia, then a very interesting version of logic. My God, Hegel, this is for me the craziest moment of Hegel. You remember that when he was a professor at a high school, he gave a high school course for pure, what did they get from it? You know, like, like and, and the, treating logic exactly the way you describe it, you know, as some kind of a cold system to be explained to young men of 15, 16, being nothing, uh, becoming, or whatever. No. I, again, I think that, that 
it's it's a it's a it's it's never you know this idea of especially late Hegel is this that's the usual idea this young Hegel and still phenomenology is still a living thought while the late Hegel is some kind of a dead systematizer if anything and some French guys I forgot their name uh, emphasize this I think the time is to stop the same as with Marx this celebration of lively existential young Hegel and to start to say Berlin Hegel is our Hegel Okay, uh, that's wonderful. Now, uh, lots of people have asked me about this business that was uh, published recently in the Observer newspaper, that the Royal Royal Opera House, Covent Garden, has commissioned four operas on your work. Can you explain to us what is happening? Is it possible going to be one of those? No, it's nothing. It's nothing. It is just that uh, I like... Casper uh, Holten, because he did the, the director of the yeah. of uh, Covent Garden, and he is a snob like me, you know, a radical leftist. And then I asked him what was the most pleasant moment when you staged the ring. He told me when uh, the Queen of Denmark visited me, and <laughs> like, all true leftists are like this, you know. But seriously, no. So what what is the story? <laughs> the story is just this. He got some money and wants to spend it on new operas, and it's pure... He just wants my name to add some intellectual charisma to him. It means... uh, He made it pretty clear, and that's what I like, that nothing serious he wants from me, nothing. What about the Antigone? I thought we were going to do the Antigone together. That's what I tried to bribe him with, but he basically said, fuck off, no? No, he said, a very interesting idea, but you know, like, okay, not now, forget about it. So I'm still looking for someone to do my... Triple, by triple Antigone, <laughs> or to do these new versions of Parsifal, because you know, Alain Badiou, his dream is to stage. Alain Badiou has two dreams now. One is, as we all know, to do a film on Plato. But you know what kind of film? First, I thought some shitty Godard style, you know. No, no. <laughs> Big Hollywood production. Brad Pitt should be young Plato. <laughs> Young Aristotle, who is bad guy, should be played by Tom Cruise, but the one from Magnolia, you know, the disgusting character. Penelope Cruz should be Plato's wife, and, and Badiou himself should be the old Parmenides, the teacher, the great one. And first I thought he is joking. And then it took me half an hour to get it, that he means absolutely seriously, I learned he already contacted friends if, in Hollywood if they can uh, so this is one, his second dream most serious is to stage a communist version of Parsifal the idea is when Parsifal said, and Hild and Graal disclosed the grail, it's red flag which is like this no? that would be maybe my true dream no? ok, thank you we're going to see it happen. but if you want to get a good Caspar Colton. You can get it now on DVD, I think. It's not uh, entirely a success, but it works. A shortened version of Don Giovanni set in today's London. It works. It's interesting. I'm not saying it's a great thing, but it's like, what I like is that it's this contemporary Don Giovanni, when, when Don Giovanni seduces Zerlina. My God, you see him and her naked, you know, like... It's the thing itself, not fat opera singer singing and so on, no? Okay, okay thank sorry. you very much. Great. Thank you. Okay, you survived. You know where you are.